what better way to show your support than by purchasing some of our amazing LTGW merchandise. We have caps, t-shirts, cups, mugs, tumblers, hoodies, wristbands, watch bands, and so much more. stories about addiction we might oh stories about recovery too mm, but mostly stories about how addiction turns smart sensitive people into liars thieves gluttons and whores liars and thieves and gluttons and whores oh liars thieves gluttons and whores oh my liars thieves gluttons and whores oh my liars thieves gluttons and whores oh my Welcome, welcome, welcome. You are on the air with me, Nancy Adair, and the podcast Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores. This is a show where we talk in conversational language about all the dark side and light side of both recovery and addiction. I usually say it the other way around, addiction and recovery. Um, however, there are lots of people that are, experience the dark side of recovery, too. And with me today, I have a wonderful friend, um, Bob Bean, who is an author, a Reiki healer, a shamanic practitioner, a former firefighter, which I just learned about today, and has 33 years of sobriety. So um, I hope you enjoy the conversation we have. And Bob, is there anything else that you'd like to say in terms of introducing yourself to our audience? Uh, just in introducing myself, I've had um, maybe 50 years of my life has been uh, as a first responder. And I still think of myself as, as a first responder. Today, I am a first responder reaching out to help other people who are struggling. And I, I love the healing arts. You know, when I focus specifically in my work with artists in recovery, and that spans writers, musicians, fine artists, and it also entails the entrepreneur who's doing their art of business. And I think healing arts are, are very much that. They are an art. Um, so one of the things that brought you on the podcast today was on the heels of another episode with Kathy Moser, who said very adamantly that she believes sobriety does not dampen a person's creativity. And you said that as well. You were very clear that no, it does not dampen creativity. So do you want to say a little bit more about that too, Bob? Yes, I can. Uh, I Thank you. Thank you very much. My addiction was alcohol. Uh, and alcohol in my studies about all of that. Uh, and by the way, uh, in, in a few weeks, we're going to reach a certain date, December 27th. 
that date will mark 12,000 consecutive days of sobriety for me. Okay. But my, in my studies about all of it, addiction was a distraction for me from moving onward in my life and becoming what I am today. When I drank, I didn't have to think about those other things. The alcohol was a distraction. When I reached the point in my life, and that was February, the morning of February 10, 1990, when in that morning I had a very loud, clear male voice speaking in my right ear, and that male voice said, hey, pal, you keep this up, you're going to be dead in three years. And I listened to that voice and I said, whoa, that was my first morning of sobriety. Following that time, I went through eight months of uh, coming to the realization that my first marriage was a nightmare. It was not a place for me to be. I left there, filed a divorce. Four months later, I met a lady at a support group meeting. That lady today, she and I just recently celebrated 32 years together. Uh, but at the same time, what I found was that my sobriety allowed my, myself to begin to reach out and to get creative about many other things. I did some artistic work. I did some writing work. I have done, uh, I've taken classes and become a Reiki master, a holistic care practitioner. Today, I'm also a shaman. Uh, at the same time, I have made wonderful, wonderful family in the AA program. I have made a wonderful, wonderful family in the veterans program near where I live in North Windham, Maine. And that has allowed me to begin to reach out. I have found out through random comments by other people that today I am considered to be a really, really, really nice man who helps other people. This is a result of my walking away from the alcohol. This has been the changes in my life since then. Again, today, my creativity uh, revolves around, again, reaching out and helping other people, whether it's using Reiki, whether it's using shamanic stuff, whether it's talking to people, uh, talking to people about suicide. I'm starting to do that through the Wyndham Veterans Center. And that is the creativity that has been brought to me since I walked away from the alcohol. And since you walked away from the slow suicide of alcohol. Yeah. First, alcohol and other drugs take away our life source. Yes, uh, they do. In making that life smaller and smaller and smaller. I know at the point when... I got sober and I'm coming up this month on my 42nd year anniversary. 
Hey, congratulations. It was funny because it was Thanksgiving in 1980, which was November 27th. But all I knew, right, when I was newly sober was that it was Thanksgiving Day. <laughs> so I celebrated Thanksgiving Day the next five years, not on the date of my sobriety. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes a little sooner, sometimes I, I don't know, but I now I look it up if I can't remember and um and it's always you know november 27th 1980 um and what was true back then is that there were two people left in my life that i loved and that i knew loved me i was actually separated from one of them it was my husband at the time and we were separated and um my sister and I had gotten drunk and my, my sister came with, um, <laughs> I, I just have to tell the whole story. My sister came with all the accoutrements to go with a Thanksgiving meal because she knows that I'm allergic to sugar. And she brought them to my home and I was already dressed up and 24 years old to go out to a bar. And our father had passed away not long before, and I was put on a medication um, to handle the grief and anxiety. And my sister said, can't the alcohol and the medication kill you if combined? And I said, yeah. So kind of like with no fear of it at all. And she turned her heels, walked out of the house and slammed the door. Yeah. Next day, Thanksgiving Day, my husband arrived at my apartment with a turkey. And I didn't realize, I knew he was bringing over a turkey for us to have for Thanksgiving, but I didn't realize that he was bringing over a raw turkey. Talk about selfishness. What I said to him was, that'll take hours to cook. And I handed him some magazines. And you know what he did? He turned around on his heels, left and slammed the same door. And then he went to my sister's house and they called me up. This is long before 1980, it's before cell phones. They had each on a different phone from her house and said, Nancy, you've got to do something or we're done. And that frightened me because like I said, they were the last two people. And I just thought, I'm going to be all alone and I'm going to die alone if I don't go. I had gone to AA already. I had been about a month sober before I, I went out. Um, and I knew to, they weren't saying go to AA, but I knew that's where I needed to go back. And like you said, Bob, I love the, the creativity of all the communities that we build as a result of being sober, I have a spiritual community. I have had dance communities, <laughs> I have an art community. Uh, they're just lovely. They are families for us. Okay. My, for what it's worth, my childhood was very, 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 very abusive. So I grew up without having any really experience in how to have 
a family. When I got sober and I walked out the door on my first marriage, oh, by the way, the four year time period before I got sober, I was dancing on the edge of suicide. I was so discouraged. And that suicide attempts included uh, driving home from Portland, Maine to Brownfield, Maine at night on narrow two lane roads, turning off the headlights and keeping on driving at 55 or 60 miles an hour. I did that. When I got sober, I, 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 at first I was kind of dancing around on my two feet saying, all right, what do I do now? Wait a minute. And AA taught me, I started counting days. I've been sober for one day. Oh, I've been sober for a week. Wow. I've been sober for one month. Whoa. I wonder if I can make 52 weeks. And I hit that date. And by that time, I had left my first marriage, filed for divorce. I was living in an apartment. And all of a sudden, I looked at the, the calendar and I said, wow, it's been one year that I haven't had a drink. And I'm starting to feel great. But then back to the subject of families, today, uh, I have had some unbelievably positive, beautiful experiences with five other families that I'm a member of. I'm a retired city firefighter. I am a, 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 a military veteran. My wife's family, very Italian in Portland, one of the members of her family came up to me many years after this was while my wife and I were still dating. He came up to me and he says, hey, Bob, I says, yeah. He says, welcome to our family. And I almost broke down and cried. Okay. And a lot of that, they speak in the background. They say, geez, he's sober. He's a really, really, really nice guy. So these are all, these are all my families. And it has all come to me since I walked away from booze. That everything opens up rather than... Yes. And I, I think that's so important, too, for some of our listeners to hear that might be afraid of the emptiness if they put their friend alcohol down. Yeah. Um, and and really, it, it is an experience. Although, a lot of times when I'm interviewing people for this podcast, it brings me back. You know, it reminds me at the beginning... Uh, what it was like yeah. and how many people said one thing that I really hated to hear was you're just where you're supposed to be. And the other thing that people said early, early on was just go to sleep. Like if you can't figure out if you're spinning your wheels and you can't figure out what to do yourself with yourself and you've had dinner, go to bed. And there were times when I went to bed at six o'clock at night. Oh, I've done that. And just waking up the next morning, knowing that I was sober was a big deal. It's like I heard it in your voice when you said, I made it a day, I made it a week, I made it a month. And I remember that month in Maine in AA, we have the chip club. 
it's called. And there were yes. chips. But the red chip was the first one month chip that people were given in support. And it was called the blood chip because that yeah. 30 days was not easy to come by. Yes. Yeah. I, I, there's so many memories about all of that. I was four years sober before I went to my first AA meeting. Wow. And I was sent there by a counselor at the veterans, uh, uh, at the veterans organization in Portland. He said, what's going on? And I told him what was going on. And he said, here, and he handed me a list of AA meetings for the Portland area. 48 hours later, I walked into a meeting. And then it became your family. One of it, your families. That became one of my families. I became active in the organization. I stayed with the organization for about 20 years before, I, well, part of it was pandemic and everything. I just kind of drifted away from it. And you know, one of the beauties of the pandemic that I've said to a lot of, because I, I counsel addicts and alcoholics, and one of the beauties of the pandemic is that you can get on these Zoom meetings all around the world. Yeah. And you can put your camera off, you can change your name. You know, it's like more anonymous than AA stands for Alcoholics Anonymous, more anonymous than it's ever been. Yeah at least the opportunity if you wanted it. And um, yesterday, so I'm part of a FA fellowship about food addiction. And I wanted to make up a meeting that I missed yesterday. And I got on a 4 p.m. meeting last evening that was um, Zoom meeting out of Sydney, Australia. I love that area where it was 8 a.m. the next day. <laughs> yes. Just, you know, here's how expansive yeah. my 12-step family is. It goes yeah. all, and there were people there from Ireland and um, the UK and New Zealand and Australia and it was, and different parts of Australia. I've never been to Australia, but it's quite a large time. I, 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 that's way, that's number one on my, on my hope to go there sometime list. Uh, I would love to go to Melbourne because uh, it's on the south coast and my reading up about it Melbourne uh, from a latitude version we are about 44 degrees north latitude they're 44 degrees south latitude so their weather would be similar to ours similar but the opposite season Correct? Yes, exactly. Yeah, because yeah. I yeah. remember when I went to New Zealand. Christmas for the Christmas for them is a day to go out and sit on the beach. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly. I went to New Zealand over Christmas. Um, it's now maybe four years ago, and uh, and I chaired a meeting on Christmas Day in Wellington, New Zealand. Oh wow! And it was warm in their summertime, so it's very yeah. lovely. Um, I wanted to bring us back for a few minutes to this, what you said you were a first responder and still are. Um, and back in your firefighting days, where did that sync up with your sobriety? And I'm asking specifically 
Bob, because one of the other things that I found in myself when I got sober at 24, I started ice climbing. I think I still needed to be on the edge and your description of walking into a second floor building um, two weeks on your job as a firefighter to, you know, with flames coming out the windows, I imagine that's quite adrenaline producing. The adrenaline rush that you go, and I've done some studies and taken classes on this. When you're in a frightening situation, your body is flooded with adrenaline. And that's a rush. That's a rush. Okay. And good parts and bad parts is it also helps you to think a little clearer. It also gives you that burst of energy that you need on a negative thing if you don't work that off adrenaline changes into deposits in your bloodstream and it blocks your arteries wow. but yeah no no i've taken classes on all of this uh, and at the same time being as a first responder I don't know how much you're aware of, of PTSD, okay? Mm-hmm. I have taken classes in that. And I was in counseling for 18 years. And the counselor that I went to see the first 10 minutes after I walked into his office, he saved my life. Because so I want to um, interrupt for a moment for yeah, our listeners. When Bob said PTSD, he's re- he's talking about post-traumatic stress disorder. Correct. And it's it was initially um, a diagnosis after the Vietnam War, when uh, war veterans would duck under a car in a parking lot because they heard like a helicopter overhead. It's a response that's physical, emotional, I would say spiritual as well, when something activates a response that came much earlier. And, yes. And that, so it's the post-trauma. It's hap- It's not happening now. There's no helicopter, or there might be a helicopter, but there's not a war zone. Um, there's no need to duck and cover. And... Um, and there are many, many ways that we respond long after the trauma has passed with a trauma response that does not serve us. Yes. Yes. And it's not just being in a war zone. It's, have you ever seen a dead body outside of a funeral home? I have not. I My first one, I was about four or five weeks after my 18th birthday when I saw my first dead body. Mm. And it was a woman who had been floating around Portland Harbor for over six weeks. We picked her body up out of the water with a wire mesh stretcher. And as we did so, meat from her body, muscles, fell away from the skeleton. Okay. These are memories that we carry with us. And and sometimes it's like you were saying, sometimes when you're in a standard situation, suddenly one of those memories comes back and and you're there again. You're there again. And the fear is there. All of it is there. 
it's just, but it, it, PTSD is a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. When that counselor told me that, it just, it, there was a door within me that opened wide and it was filled with light. There was suddenly, there was a, a validation of my memories in me. And I said, wow, wow, okay. Uh, and later on, a couple of years later, I took a class called CISD, and it's Critical Incident Stress Debriefing. And it's a particular, and I learned how to do that for people or small groups of people who have been faced with a abnormal situation. And I was taught how to help them to get through it. And that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. Critical incident stress debriefing. One. And uh, I was the second person in the state of Maine to be certified for that. Some of my other uh, accomplishments and all of that, I was the 20th EMT in the state of Maine. I was the first one in Portland, Maine. I was the only one for five years with the Portland Fire Department. <sighs> It's just, these are the things that we do in our life, but it's a part of our life journey. We just have to adapt ourselves to that journey. So again, Bob, I wanna go back to that question about how did that line up with drinking? I started drinking uh, when I was in the Coast Guard uh, my memory is sitting in a bar, the Enlisted Man's Club on Cape May, New Jersey, the Coast Guard Boot Camp. It was the day I turned 18 years old. And at that time in New Jersey, age 18 was legal drinking. I sat at the Enlisted Man's Bar and I had a beer and I told the bartender, this is my first legal drink. Part of my drinking problem is DNA. <laughs> my biological family and there is probably 40 or 50 of us in the Portland area alone and out of that 40 or 50 I know two ladies sisters who don't drink it's it's my father did my brother did my sister did I did my uncles did my aunts did we all drank and we all drank heavily I'm from a much smaller nucleus family. However, uh, the only ones that are with me today that have survived are in recovery. Yes. You know, alcohol and drugs killed everybody else. One, one of my, one of the two sisters, and they're my second cousins, their father also did not drink. And he was one of my heroes for that. Uh, she said to me once, she said, well, she says, alcoholism uh, is like a stampede through our family. And I said, no, it is not. It's a tsunami. Yeah. 
Well, I say something similar to my own son, which is the tides out in your gene pool. Be careful. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But at the same time, some of us, some of us are guided to walk away from that. And when and when we do, we we immediately, immediately find out that life is a much better place to be if you don't have a bottle or a drink in your hand. Right. Or any um, even non-substance addictive behavior and process. Exactly. It's about living. It's about, yes. you know, putting that to the side so that we can really be alive in our life. Exactly. And welcome in all these new families and creativity and creative expression. I am um, very happy to be doing this. Is there anything else that you would really like our listeners to know or hear about you? Gosh. <laughs> You're talking to a man who, until he was in his late 30s, he was a qualified introvert. <laughs> I would never have known that. Uh, and when with my sobriety and with my contact with my other five families, I have now become a equal balance between being an introvert and being an extrovert. I love to make people smile. I love to make them laugh. I love to show them love. And I do it. I go to the grocery store and I talk to 10 people, complete strangers, because it makes their day just a little better. But that's what I have evolved into. And it has all come. My first steps were that first morning of sobriety. One day, one week, one month, one year. Wow, my life is starting to change. And 12,000 days. Consecutive days. Consecutive days. Um, and February 10th, this coming February 10th, will be 33 years. Nice. Yep. Now, as a result of this, I think I'm going to add up the days from November 27th 1980 and see what it comes out to be yeah i i was i found that where there were a couple of us on facebook a, a couple of months ago and one of the one of the men that i know is also a long-term recovery or recovered whichever term we want to use i drank for 28 and a half i've been sober for 32 and a half i think i'm recovered <laughs> but i He's the one who says, hey, he says, count the days. I'm at 12,000. And I said, oh, I got to I got I got to do this. I got to crunch the numbers and see how this works out. And my 12,000 number day will be December 27th. I love it. And I, I'm going to crunch those numbers, too. I also there was something you just said. Gosh, now it's going. Going, going, gone. Welcome to my world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you look to be a little senior than than I am, Bob, but uh, we're both in that camp where things. My <laughs> my last birthday was seven nine. Yeah. 
Uh, when when do you come up on your 80th? 8-8 eight, eight next year. August yeah. 2000. I'm a Leo. <laughs> I'm a Leo. And and that's another thing I, I love. I, we could have a whole nother conversation about astrology um, and going from that an introverted Leo that fascinates me too. Yeah. Um, because I think your real nature, even in the astrology, is something that, as you said, with sobriety has come to the forefront where it's now yes. equalized and you get energy from being alone and from your shamanic practices practices and meditation, but you also get so much energy. Oh, that just spurred what I was I forgot which is that you said you're a really, really, really nice man. And I thought, how wonderful to say that because I bet back in your drinking days that wouldn't be how you would describe at least yourself. Correct. Yeah. That last four years of drinking when I was suicidal, I just was desperate to get out of the, the septic tank that I was swimming around in. Yeah. I had to get out of that. I wrote a poem about it. Talks about climbing up out of a deep stone-lined well where smelly, brown, round things were floating around in the water. And then there's some urge to within that's given to you to there's something better. And so you start climbing and you slip back, you st stop, you catch your breath, you still start climbing. And then all of a sudden you get up to a flat place and you lay down to rest. You fall asleep because it's, it's been a chore, but then you wake up and there's something going on around you. You look up and the sky is blue. There's green things all around you, trees, flowers, bushes. You're listening to birds and you look up and you look and off in the distance, just a little ways, there's a line of trees and this beautiful, beautiful, bright yellow, orange, round thing is rising above the trees and it's shining on you. That's where you've come since climbing up out of that septic tank. And you know what you just described? why they call it our sober birthday oh yeah yes yes so. yes all right bob i think on that note we'll conclude the interview for today thank you so much for joining me and thank you thank you this is this is called karma yeah you tr you reached out and treated me well i reached back and treat you well Terrific. That's the way it works. Do you suppose we'll hear stories about addiction? We might. Oh. Stories about recovery, too? Mm, but mostly stories about how addiction turns smart, sensitive people into liars, thieves, gluttons, and whores. Liars? And thieves? And gluttons and whores. Oh, liars, thieves, gluttons and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons and whores. Oh, my. Liars, thieves, gluttons and whores. Oh, my.
I went into Roots Cafe the other day and I ran into a friend of mine who I happen to know is clean and sober. And he was sitting with his nephew, who I also learned is in sobriety. And I told him about our podcast, Liars, Thieves, Gluttons, and Whores. And he just loved the title and said, oh, I want that on a t-shirt. And I said, well... Thank you.